Well, this is an important message for us tonight because it is the capstone for an entire series that we've been in since March 19th of this year. It's the longest series that we've ever done uh, as a church. And so tonight, if you're visiting with us, you're kind of get a, you're going to get a synopsis of all of those sermons. There's a slide that's going to pop up. The sermon series has been called the story. The Bible tells a story, and you have a part to play. But this is the this has been the series. Every single week, we've done a piece of this, or sometimes we've done a couple of pieces of it. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but there's one big story. I think for so many of us, if you've grown up in the church like I have, that most of your life reading the Bible has been spotlight reading, meaning that you jump in and out of the Bible and you see this part and then you see that part, but but maybe you never come to this place of realizing there's actually one large story that all of those smaller stories feed up into from Genesis to Revelation. And so tonight, what I want to do is we're going to just work through this whole thing from one side to there. We've done this one other time in the history of the church. And so many people, they said, I've never heard the whole story of the Bible told that way. And, and, and I think this is what's important, is that it reminds you that you're supposed to be a part of the story. Me- meaning that the story the Bible tells is supposed to be the story of your life. It's not just supposed to be the story of the people that are in the Bible. It's supposed to be the story of us. The Bible tells us that before this earth, as we know it was created, there was a great rebellion in heaven. That a third of all the angels rebelled against God, led by Lucifer. If you're familiar with the idea of devil, the enemy of our soul, that's where he begins, comes to our knowledge as he leads a great rebellion. A third of all the angels in heaven were caught up in that rebellion. There was a great war in heaven. And then Lucifer lost. All the angels that were with him were lost. And then they were cast out of heaven. Now, I believe it's in this moment. This is what we teach here at City Life. This is what I teach is that I believe in that moment that God decided he was going to create a new kind of being. I think in that moment, as God was reflecting on that rebellion, that there was an idea that he had that every other being that he had ever created, and as you read the Bible, you realize there's all kinds of incredible beings that exist in the heavenlies, that all those beings were always in a perfect place. They were created in a perfect place, they existed in a perfect place, and a perfect place was all that they ever knew. And I think God said, I'm going to create a new kind of being, and this being we're going to call human beings, that I'm going to create them outside of heaven. And so that's where I believe the Genesis narrative picks up in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of the creation story, is that he creates Adam and Eve. Now, it's interesting to me that he creates them in a perfect place, and I think this is God proving his point to us, that even though he creates us outside of heaven, he puts them in a perfect place. And what do we see Adam and Eve do? They too fall prey to the same temptations that the fallen angels had as they fall prey to the temptation of rebellion. That Adam and Eve in their own way decided we're going to rebel against God. I think that's God proving his point. If perfection is all that you ever know, then you don't realize how good you have it. And God wanted to create a being that would have what I call a comparative experience. He wanted us to know what it's like to be separated from him. Now, the cross is here 
in the center of the story, and we're going to get to that, and you might be asking, why is that there? And that's there because God did not plan for Eden to be the ultimate place for human beings to dwell. If you're not careful, you'll read the Bible with this idea that God had this incredible plan for the Garden of Eden, and we were all going to live there, and we are going to be there forever, and then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve messed all that up, and then we were left in this place of waiting for God to decide what he was going to do next. But that's not what we believe about God. That's not what we believe about the sovereignty of God. We believe that he's all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present. God, from the foundations of the earth, knew that he would one day send his son to die for the sins of the world. This was always part of his plan. So God creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin, and they are put out of the Garden of Eden. And this idea of being a center, sinner enters into the human experience of the biblical narrative for the first time. Sinner doesn't just mean that we do sins. It means that we are sinned. This verse here in Romans says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you think that sin as an idea in the Bible is just talking about the wrong things that we do, that's only half of it. Part of what the Bible is trying to help us to understand is who we are. That there is a spiritual DNA that we inherited from Adam and Eve. The nature of who we are as people is to have our own way. And I always joke here, if you do not believe that, then you should just volunteer in the nursery just once. Okay? Nobody has to teach a child how to be selfish. It comes natural to us. Why is that? Because we're sinners. Ella does not listen to her mother because she's a sinner. I know, right? That's so good. You and I have a heart problem. And we want to have our own way. We want to have our own way. Now, it's a problem in many ways because God says, if, if you continue on that path of just wanting to have your own way, at some point when this life comes to an end for you, you're going to stand in the heavens and give an account for your life. This verse in Hebrews says that for man is destined to die once and then to face judgment. There's a seriousness to my condition. It should be that my condition is, is, is sobering. My, my condition is spiritually terminal. You and I are born into this world with an inclination towards rebellion, and God says one day we're going to give an account. Now, the outcome of that judgment is going to be the same for everyone who rejects God's plan for our salvation. And we see this word. Uh, this verse in Romans 6.23 that talks about eternal death. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And now it's important that the Bible uses the term wage because it means that it's earned. If you've ever had a job, if, if you have a job now, there is an expectation when, when, when it's time for you to be paid that you're going to get paid and you understand it's owed to you. You understand it's a wage. It's not a gift. Now, this verse, as we're going to see later tonight, the, the verbiage switches to gift when it comes to what God does for us. But what we deserve because of what we are is we deserve an eternal death. All of us are born into this world the same way. All of us have a judgment that is waiting for us. And all of us, because of what we are and who we are, do, what we deserve is an eternal death, which is forever being separated from God. But in this life, there's this longing that we begin to discover. 
Maybe some of you are discovering it tonight. There's times where we come into places or we're around people where maybe we, we think they're a little bit different than we are, and it, and it, it awakens something in us. It awakens something in us to want to know God and to be known by him. Even if you don't understand how to articulate it, even if you don't know how to describe it, even if you don't know how to express it, you you have this feeling inside of you that there is more. You have this feeling inside of you that, that there is a way that you can be satisfied that you've never experienced through anything in this life. Now, when that stirring begins to happen inside of us, this, this, this need to know God and to be known by him. Most of us, my story includes this, we, we, because of who we are, we think that we can fix it ourselves. So we try to live a better life. We try to be good people. We try to think good thoughts. We try to do good works, right? This is all part of our sin nature as well, which is I will fix it myself. And for some people, we chase that for far too long. And we all come to the same conclusion. We cannot heal our own heart. This longing that we have inside of us to know God and to be known by him, there's something intuitively inside of us. Again, even if we don't understand this diagram or couldn't draw this diagram, we have this feeling of separation, and we want to be with him on the other side. The Bible describes it as a hunger, The Bible describes it as a thirst. And then the Bible uses this incredible picture of being born into the family of God, which we'll talk more about later. But I think the reason why he uses that is because he's speaking to this longing inside of us for acceptance. He's speaking to this longing inside of us to be accepted by him. He's speaking to this longing inside of us to know him and to be known by him. But God always had a plan. God always knew that he was going to make a way for us to be reconciled to him. Now, you, you might say, Fred, I don't really think this is fair that we are judged for the way God intended us to be, right? I think that's a fair question. You, you might say, Fred, I don't think it's fair for God's plan to be that I'm going to be born into this world of sinner and that, that I didn't really have a say in that and I didn't really have a choice in that. And I would say that's fair if it were not for the reality that God all along as part of his plan was going to extend to you an offer of salvation. Right? The fact that you were born into this world in the condition that you're in, this might be hard to hear, is one of the greatest gifts that he's ever given to you. One of the greatest gifts that he's ever given to you is the gift of a comparative experience. This idea of living our lives, feeling what it's like to be separated from him, feeling what it's like to not know him, feeling what it's like to not be known by him is one of the greatest gifts that he gives to you because at the point that you are reconciled with him, you will never want anything else. At the point that your life is reconciled to him, you're always going to remember what it was like to not know him and to not be known by him. It's incredible. The genius of God, the way he designs it. And I believe that every person, every person at some point, somehow, some way, God reveals himself to them and they have a chance to accept what he offers. And God's plan for our salvation was always sending his son into the world It changes the way that you read the Bible, doesn't it? 
If you read the Bible that we messed it up and God had to come in with some, some, plan, some crisis intervention, it changes how you see God. It changes how you see this world. But when you begin to realize that the Bible tells one ultimate story from start to finish, and that story from start to finish was to repopulate heaven with people like you and me, it changes the way that we see ourselves. It changes the way that we see this earthly experience Jesus came into this world. I love there that that's the verse in Luke 2, 14, where it was the angels announcing the birth of Christ and it's peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Say, our goodness will never be enough. There's nothing that we can do to ever be a good enough. Our goodness is dependent on his goodwill. And the peace that comes by knowing God and being known by him is only made possible through Jesus And when Jesus was born into this world at the age of 30, he began his teaching ministry. He began to talk to us about something called a new heart that you're going to see appear there. And the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthian church picks up on this theme that Jesus so often talked about. Here in this verse it talks about that anyone who is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. When Jesus was here teaching, he was saying, I can change the heart that's inside of you. You're still going to have a heart that longs to do things that you're not supposed to do. You're still going to have, there's a part of who you are that's not going to want to do the good that you're supposed to do. But but I'm going to add to that a new heart. A heart that's also going to long to want to do the right things. I'm also going to add to that a heart that doesn't want to do the wrong things. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans, that there's a battle taking place inside of us continually between the flesh and the spirit. And for all of our days, that battle is going to exist. The difference now is that you have a chance to fight against it. The difference now that the Spirit of God lives inside of us after we make a vow of devotion to Jesus, there's someone inside of us influencing our will to make better choices. But we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to get it right. And Jesus says, hey, that's okay, because I'm willing to forgive you for that. See, when Romans, when Paul's talking to them, he said that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, which means that Jesus, when he died on the cross, made a way for all the things that you've ever done to be forgiven. All the things that you were supposed to do that you didn't do, that those can be forgiven. But the offer gets even better. He doesn't just say, I'm willing to forgive you for the mistakes of your past. He says, I'm willing to forgive you for all the mistakes that are waiting for you in your future. He's willing to say there's, there's nothing that you can do. If you're in my family, if you're one of my children, there's nothing that you can do that would cause me ever to reject you. I had my first experience with makeup this week. I did. I was, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a driveway me- mechanic, and uh, I was changing the oil in, in, my, in my Toyota Sequoia, it's, we've had this car for about a year. It's only about the second time I've changed the oil. And as I, and I was crawling under it, I really wasn't paying attention. And I smashed my face into the tow hook that, that hangs under there. And I, and I thought to myself, that's going to leave a mark, you know. And so a couple of days later, sure enough, you know, if you've ever had a, a, a black eye, I hit it right here on the side. At some point, gravity takes over, right? And all the blood just kind of drains in. And uh, I guess it was around on Wednesday, Vanessa came to me and said, are, are you going to keep walking around looking like that? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you, you, you just have this nasty, ugly black eye. I said, 
I'm a dude. This is right. This is what, guys, this is what happens to us. And she's like, well, you've got a wedding this weekend. I had a rehearsal this morning, wedding tomorrow. I recorded that, the, the promo that you saw for Discover City Life. She said, you're, you're not doing any of that with a black eye. You're, and I said, why not? She's like, she's look, incredulous. She can't figure out why I don't understand it. And so well, I did what any husband would do. I did what she told me to do. Right? Marriage 101. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, ladies. So on Friday, I'm in her office, and I've got this little kit, and, and I'm sticking my finger, and I'm trying to rub it in my eye, and I'm trying to blend it out. I've got a little on now. It looks pretty good, huh? I know. See, not bad. Not bad. In a couple of weeks, you might say, he's starting to look a lot younger. <laughs> oh, that's great. This is how we live our lives, right? Covering up. Covering up. It's one thing to hide from his presence. It's one of the reasons why we do worship the way we do it. We, we believe in a living God. And, and we want you to experience, or even if you've never experienced it and it's foreign to you, we want you to see what it looks like for, for people to stand in a place believing that we, we can know his presence. We can know his presence. And, and, and it might be that you say, I don't want to be in an environment like that. That's hiding from his presence. But it can be once you come into his presence, you hide in his presence. M- meaning that you're, you don't want to talk to God about the things that are in your heart. And my encouragement to you is don't hide from him. And, and, and the other thing I would say to you is you don't have to hide from him. He doesn't care about the black eyes on your soul. He doesn't care about the imperfections. Does he want to change them? Sure he does. Is he going to challenge us at times to to become different? Sure he is. That's part of the discipleship journey. He doesn't want to leave us the way way he found us. Is is there healing that he wants to bring? Is there forgiveness he wants to challenge? All of that is part of what I'm saying is you don't don't have to hide that from him. His gaze upon you is not dependent on what you're doing. It's based on who you are, and he loves you just like you are. There's a promise of change. There's a challenge of transformation. We believe in all of that here. But don't buy into the belief that you got to get all of that right before you come into his presence. You bring what you have as you are. Forgiveness, eternal life. This is so great here. Paul writes here in in, in this verse, See, for the wages of sin is death, but then the verse keeps going, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see how the language changes? It changes from wage to gift. What what we've earned is eternal separation from God, but what he gives to us is the promise of being with him for all eternity. I cannot earn it. The most good person that you could ever think of who's ever lived, somebody like Mother Teresa or maybe some other person that comes to mind who's done incredibly great things in this life, none of us will ever be good enough to make our way from here to there. We cannot cross the chasm by ourselves. Being born into this world on this side of the chasm is a great gift to us because of the comparative experience. But what's even a greater gift is the way in which Jesus says, you can come to be over here with me. 
Acts 4.12 says, There's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. Christianity is both perfectly inclusive and also perfectly exclusive. It's perfectly inclusive in the sense that God's invitation to all of us to be reconciled to him is for everyone. But it's completely exclusive in the sense that he says Jesus is the only way. You understand the difference? It's inclusive in the sense that the invitation is for all. It's exclusive in the sense that he says, but Jesus is the only way. We don't get to come to him on our terms. At some point, there's something inside of us that has to acknowledge that I'm human and that he is divine. Something inside of us at some point has to yield to the wisdom of divinity. Something inside of us at some point has to yield to the perfectness of his sovereignty. Something inside of us at some point, even if there's mystery that we carry, even if there's questions that remain unanswered, and there most certainly will be, there's something inside of my heart that has to say, I trust his plan. I trust his plan. The Bible lays out for us the way in which we take steps to move from one side to the next. Romans 10, 9 through 14, there's three very important words that were given. It's the words hear, believe, and confess. Hear, believe, and confess. It might be that you're here in this room tonight or you're watching online and you're hearing this story for the very first time. You're hearing a presentation of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, for the very first time. At some point, you have to hear it. At some point, there's a moment in your life where you hear Jesus's plan to rescue you. And as you hear it, something inside of you begins to stir. I'm convinced that John chapter 3, there's a lot of great things in there, but one of the things that John chapter 3 teaches us is that your heart is able to recognize truth long before your mind. Eventually, there has to be an intellectual acceptance and intellectual understanding, but it's your heart that recognizes truth first. We recognize also this as you look at children. Children, when they're in the arms of their mother or their father, they can't intellectually understand everything that's happening, but in their heart, they know that person loves them and cares for them. Even in our own human experience, our hearts oftentimes resonate with truth long before our mind catches up. At some point when you hear the story of the gospel, something in your heart says, that feels right to me. I want to know God, and I want to be known by him, and I believe that Jesus is the only way. We hear, we believe, and then there's a confession. We call it a vow of devotion to Christ. I like that language because I feel like people understand what that is. If you're married, you made a vow. If you're in the military, you made a vow. If you serve in the law enforcement, you made a vow. It might be that you serve in some other, other capacity where you had to take an oath when you stepped into that responsibility. You made a vow. When you had children, whether you realized it or not, you made a vow. You made a vow. Jesus says, will you make a vow of devotion to me? Will, will you make a vow of devotion to me? In Romans 10, it says, we, we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart that Jesus is Lord. And that he was raised from the dead. 
and it uses this word that we'll be saved, which means that we're rescued, which means that we move from this place of being on just humankind separated from God, and we move to this place of being reconciled to God. John 1, 12 through 13 says, to as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, even to those that believed on his name. Come on. In that moment where you make a vow of devotion to Christ, which I did in December of 1990, driving down LaBurnham Avenue in my 1984 Honda Prelude, is there a moment in time in your story of your life? Can you look back over the story of your life and find a moment in time where you made a vow of devotion to Christ? Because that's your spiritual birthday. I like to say that's when you took your first spiritual breath. You crossed the chasm, and something inside of you came alive. The Spirit of God took up residence in your heart, and you became a part of the family of God. And that longing inside of you that maybe you were trying to fill for decades was satiated in a moment, born into his family. Last week, we talked all about this idea of Jesus on his way to heaven. When he left here for the last 2,000 years, he's been preparing a place for you and for me, a new heaven and a new earth. I have new in parentheses there because the Bible talks about a new heaven and a, and a new earth. He's making that place for us to be with him forever. There's one more slide that's going to pop up there. The promise John 3, 3. There's an arrow at both ends of that line because the Bible says that there will be a generation that does not see death. Meaning that Jesus, in John 14, said he's coming back. Now, it's been 2,000 years. We don't know when his return is going to be, but he said he's coming. At some point, people who have made a vow of devotion to Christ, whether you find your way into the current heaven through death or whether you find your way there because you're the generation that sees the second coming of Christ, either way, heaven is promised to us. And at the end of time, there's a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be unveiled. If, if you weren't with us last week, you should watch it. We showed a video by the Bible Project that lays all of that out. That's Jesus' offer to us. It's incredible, isn't it? And you know what we take to heaven with us? We take our comparative experience. You and I, when we step into heaven, we bring something with us that every other heavenly being does not know. They've watched it play out. The book of Hebrews says that we live our lives before a great cloud of witnesses. We're the ultimate reality TV. Come on. But you and I, have you ever thought, you bring a gift with you to heaven. You bring the gift of your comparative experience. We're going to repopulate heaven as beings to live with God for all eternity, and we're never going to want anything else other than the paradise that's been offered because you and I will never forget what it's like to be separated from him. Being born into this world in the condition that we are is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given to us because he's preparing us for eternity. So while we wait, while we wait, we're going to tell the story of the gospel and we're going to live the way of Jesus. That's our mission statement for us as a church. We're going to tell the story of the gospel, which is this story, 
And we're going to live the way of Jesus because we want Jesus to be easily found in the 757. That's our vision. That's our dream. That's our hope because people need to know this story. And it might be that people are going to know this story through you, through your example, through watching you live, by your invitation to step into settings just like this. Acts 1.8 is an important verse for us. It says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We, we, we can't tell the story of the gospel and live the way of Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit at work inside of our lives. All of 2023 is going to talk about living the way. Just like this year, from March until now, we've done this one long series, just immersing ourselves in what it means to know the story of the gospel, to tell the story of the gospel, understanding that, that, that you have a part to play. Your part to play is you're supposed to live this out for you and so that you can lead others into it. But then in 2023, for each quarter, we're going to give the next slide, we're going to talk about each one of these boxes. This is our, if you've been around our church for any amount of time, this is how we do discipleship here. Each one of these boxes represents something of our life with Christ. Doxa is talking about the seven foundational principles of Christianity. There's lots of open-handed issues. With Churches have to learn. We've got to learn to get along with people. We're not all going to all agree on the same things, but there's some things that we should agree on. And I believe that there's seven of those. We call that doxa, which is a Greek word for belief. We want our beliefs to be life-changing and gospel-proclaiming, meaning that we don't, don't just want to say we know the truth of the Bible. That truth in the Bible should be changing who we are. What we, what we believe should be life-transformative. When I say I believe in the Trinity, how is that changing the way that you live? When we say that we believe that Jesus is life, how is that changing the way that you live? When we, believe, when we say we believe the Bible is true, how is that changing the way that we live? We're going to spend a quarter talking about doxa. The next one is praxis. That was one of the first ones we developed here in a church. We've actually got a booklet. If you're a visitor, there's a little green booklet. We'll give it to you. It's free. It says, if I accept the one, then I must obey the six. And to obey the six, I walk in the 12. When I walk in the 12, I become the 24. The 24 are the 24 virtues that represent the character of Christ. The 12 are pathways or spiritual disciplines. The six commands are the commands of Christ. And the one is the invitation into discipleship that Jesus extends to you the moment you make a vow of devotion to him. Praxis, a pathway-centric life. Then we're going to talk about Shema. We're going to do a quarter on that. Then we're going to talk about this idea of Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word to hear. And in Hebrew, listening and doing, they're not two separate words. In Hebrew, it's one word. And I'm glad that it's one word. Because God's saying, if you hear me, there should not be any question of doing. Right? As Americans, we want to hear, and then we want to decide if we want to do. As children of God, the idea is that we hear, and as we hear, doing is reflexive. It should be our instinct. We teach about the five conversions of the soul. We're going to do a quarter on that, talking about how do I close the gap between listening and doing. And then the last one is shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Are you at peace with God, yourself, and others in creation? I believe that those four quadrants represent a lifetime of discipleship. We're never going to finish any of those. We're never going to finish any of those. But this is what it means to live the way, the way of Jesus' beliefs, the way of his character, the way of his obedience, and the way of his peace. 
And I believe that as we immerse ourselves in the way of Christ, Jesus becomes easier to find in our city. Ch- churches are easily found, but are followers of Jesus e- just as easy to find. In your neighborhood, in your workplace, amongst your family, is Jesus found through the life that you're living? And is the life that you're living telling the story of the gospel? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. That's the story of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. The Bible tells a story, and you have a part to play. My question to you is, where are you in the story? What page are you on? What chapter are you in? If, if, if we had time and we could hand out a, this diagram to everybody in the room and give you a marker and, and we were able to take some time and you were able to maybe plot yourself where you are in the story, just look at that picture for a moment and ask yourself where you might be. Because my hope is that all of us, everyone in this room, everyone that's watching online, is going to be able to say at some point that you're on the side with God, telling the story of the gospel, living the way of Jesus with a hope and an expectancy that you're going to be with them and us in heaven forever. Stand with me. Father, I pray that as we go into this moment of worship, this is going to be a hiding-free zone, that there's not going to be any hiding tonight. That all of our ugliness, all of our imperfection, all of our failings, We're going to just resign ourselves to lift our hands, to lift our head towards heaven with a complete and total confidence that there is an embrace that's waiting for all of us. Not rejection, not condemnation, but an invitation. And I pray for the people that are in this room or watching online right now that as they heard me talk about looking back over to the story of their life, if they can't find a moment in time where they've made a vow of devotion to Christ, they're going to find that moment tonight on this hot August Saturday of 2022. Let's worship together.